please welcome JT Meyer as he continues our series. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, guys. Hey, I just wanted to um, just extend a personal invite to you guys to come out after the service. Um, Laura and I are really excited about the plant. We're really excited about the things that God has put on our heart for Cleveland, the things that he's already doing in Cleveland. And we'd love to be able to share with you guys kind of the, the plans now and, and the vision that we have for this church. I know a lot of you guys have asked a, a lot of questions and wanted to know, you know, the wins and the whys and the wheres. And we'd love to just be able to, to share with our church family what we're, what we're planning on doing. And our hope is, is that some of you guys would even consider to be part of the team with us. But yeah, come on out. It's right after the service. It's a short meeting. Um, we'll, we'll give you a lot of the information. And then we'll also have a time where you can ask questions as well. So um, we are continuing uh, the series that we started last week uh, called Jesus is Enough. And this series is a look at the book of the Bible, uh, Colossians. It's in the New Testament. Last week, Andrew kicked it off. And let me just say, Andrew's message was like exceptional. And I encourage you that if you weren't here last week to go uh, back and listen to it, you can listen to it on our website, on you know, iTunes, on, on a lot of different platforms like that. But go back and listen to it. We also have CDs on the info counter. Um, just to recap a little bit of what Andrew talked about, um, the book book of Colossians is actually a letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a small church in the city of Colossae. And, and if you remember the, the purpose of the letter, the reason that Paul wrote this letter was there was some bad teaching, some bad theology that was beginning to seep and filter into this church and beginning to distort the message of Jesus. And so Paul wanted to address this bad theology. And the bad theology was basically coming from two different groups. You remember the two different groups that, that, that Paul was addressing? One of the groups um, that had this kind of bad theology was this group called the Gnostics. Um, and if you remember the Gnostics, they liked Jesus. They said, Jesus is, is A-OK in our book. We, we like him. Uh, we like his teachings. We even believe that he is divine. We believe that he is God. He's, he's a lesser God. We believe in lots of gods, and he's somewhere on the, the totem pole of, of power, powerful gods, but he's not at the top. But we like his teachings. We love it. And, and the Gnostics were super, super spiritual people. They were constantly on the search and seeking deeper spiritual truths and knowledge. They had this belief that there was some secret code, the secret uh, mysterious truth behind the universe that they were constantly on the search for. And so they would look to things like astrology and, and all kinds of different world religions and, and witchcraft and, and even Christianity if it worked. But, but the Gnostics were, were totally about finding the deep hidden truth, the deep knowledge. And actually, the word Gnostic um, is the word gnosis, which means knowledge. So every time you hear the word Gnostic, think that deep hidden knowledge that they were looking for. Um, actually, uh, the Gnostics also believed that the spiritual world is the only thing that matters. 
Um, that our spirits are good, that the heavenly realm, the spirit realm is, is good, and our physical bodies in the earthly realm is bad. So they would do things like they would, they would you know, abuse themselves in order to, to say, my flesh is bad, but my spirit is, is, is good. And, and so they would say that, that, that there's this deep hidden knowledge, and you can find it in the stars and in all these different religions, and that the earth is bad and our bodies are bad, but spirit is good. So Paul was addressing them. He was also addressing the Judaizers. And remember, the Judaizers, similar to the Gnostics, they liked Jesus. They said, hey, we, we, we're on board with Jesus. Um, but what, who they were is they were a group of Jewish folks who had adopted the teachings of Jesus, but said, you know, in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God, you need to accept Jesus and the work he did on the cross, but also you need to adopt the Jewish customs and you yourself need to become Jewish. You need to follow the rules and rituals and observe the festivals and ceremonies of the Jewish faith. You need to be circumcised. You need to, uh, you know, obey the Torah, that this was a part of having right relationship with God. And so Paul is addressing these two groups and, and, and saying, you know, these aren't right. These beliefs aren't correct. And, and the thing that I love that Paul does that Andrew highlighted last week was Paul, you know, he doesn't really get it super argumentative. He doesn't start like picking apart their arguments and, 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 and get really critical. What he does is he just starts talking about how amazing Jesus is. And he starts like really lifting up Jesus and, and talking about how he is supremely better than all things. That Jesus is enough. That he is more than enough. You don't need all these other, you know, religions or all these other rules. You just need Jesus. And, and so he begins his letter to the church by communicating and setting this foundation of the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is supreme above all things. And so as we continue into chapter 2, which we'll be looking at today, uh, Paul continues this line of thinking about the supremacy of Jesus and, and that all of these other ways of thinking are, are flawed. And so I just want to say before we jump in and start reading, I love the advice that, that Andrew gave us last week to, to go home and read through the book on your own. Um, and I love to do it in one sitting, and I also love to like maybe even start digging a little deeper into it, because we can only dive so deep from, from the pulpit. So I just want to encourage you to read your Bible at home and read, read the book of Colossians. It is excellent. There's, there's so many nuggets in here that we just have to kind of skim over, but it's good stuff. So um, let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, we have book Bibles on the sides of the stage, on the sound booth. And if you don't have a Bible at home, I just want to encourage you, take one of those Bibles home. We, we would love for you to have it. It's our gift, gift to you. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Lord, would you um, take these words and, and take them from just words on a page or words just coming out of my mouth, but would you make them alive this morning? Would you breathe on these words and breathe into our spirits your truth? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, chapter 2. 
Paul says to the church, uh, he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. See, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. And delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Okay, so what is, what is Paul doing here? What is he talking about? Well, in this, this little section, Paul begins to address the Gnostics. And one thing that we can see that Paul does over and over again in his letters that he writes to these different churches, we can read about him doing it in the book of Acts, is Paul is really great at building bridges. Paul is really great at figuring out um, language and examples that the people he's talking to will understand. And Paul is doing that here. We can miss it um, in, you know, in the 21st century, but Paul is using Gnostic language and this, this little chunk here. If you put up verse 2 and 3, um, all of these things that I've underlined, they are all Gnostic buzzwords. These are all things that the Gnostic people would have re repeated regularly, and this is just part of their core beliefs, these words. And so Paul is using these Gnostic buzzwords in order to give a, a really clear description about who Jesus is. And essentially what Paul is saying is, you know, that deep mystery, that hidden truth that you're seeking for, all of the mysteries of the universe, they are hidden somewhere in some secret code. They're in the person of Jesus. Jesus holds all of the mysteries, all of the, the truth in the entire universe. He is the answer to everything. He is supreme above all things. And so, so if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for you know, the, the meaning of life, if you're looking for the, the answers to the mysteries of the universe, you need to look no further than the person of Jesus. Because in him holds all the mysteries of, of, of all the, the, the questions and truth in the entire universe. And this is really important for us to understand. And, and so Paul is addressing the Gnostics. But the problem that you may be raising right now is, well, gosh, I don't have any Gnostics in my life. So this argument was maybe great for, for Paul back then. But like, you know, my neighbor's not coming over and saying like, you know, hey, Jim, I'd like to tell you about my Gnostic faith. Um, it's just, you know, there's not a ton of Gnostics running around. But I would say that this line of thinking is still an issue for us today. That this type of thinking is very, very prevalent. And even though we don't have a lot of Gnostics or people who say they're Gnostics, the principle of this belief still stands. How many people would say they have people in their life or maybe you would say this, where you would say, I love the teachings of Jesus. I love Jesus. He's great. The Bible has some really good stuff in it, but I also love the teachings of, you know, 
Buddhism, and I also really get some good stuff out of the Quran, and there's, a, there's, there's really good knowledge in all of these different places. And so may, I'm not really a Christian. I'm more of a spiritual person. And so I, I like Jesus and his teachings, but I also, you know, I like astrology and I, and, and, you know, I practice w Wiccan and, and some of those things. And, and, and this would be very similar to what the Gnostics were saying, that they would say, I like Jesus and he's a part of what I believe, but I also like this and I also like this deity and I also like this practice. And so I incorporate, you know, the, the reading of the stars or, or tarot cards or, or these things into my belief. And I want to say this humbly, but I also want to say this really clearly because I, I think this is really important that when someone says something like that to me, when they say, I like the teachings of Jesus, but I also like to incorporate these things in, generally what I think is, they don't really know the teachings of Jesus. And again, I say this humbly. The reason I say this is because Jesus' message, the things that Jesus taught, they don't play well with other world religions. They don't. They, 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 they don't line up. They, they, they actually conflict with one another. And Jesus didn't come and say, hey, I'm a really good option to get to God. I'm one of the ways you can get to God. He didn't say, if you like what I have to say, great, but there's some other really good things too. He said, I am the only way to get to God. That I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. All other paths lead to destruction. And this can feel very exclusive, and in some ways it is very exclusive. It is saying that there is no other way to, to you know, achieve salvation or to, to get to heaven or to, 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 to experience God other than through the person of Jesus. He said, I am the gate. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I, he, constantly Jesus is making this very clear that I am the only way. And so to say, I like Jesus, but I like these other things, they really don't, they're not compatible with one another. And hear me out, I'm not saying, like, the reason I'm able to say this humbly is because this is not my opinion. I'm not sharing, hey, this is what I think about what Jesus, this is what Jesus said. If we just use Jesus' words, we have to like say he, he, it's not compatible with the other world religions or the other philosophies of the world. Actually, I really like the way that the great prophet Bono puts it. Bono is the lead singer of the band U2. He's, he's very outspoken uh, in his faith. And he was asked in an interview uh, this, this, this very question. He was asked basically, you know, hey, I like the teachings of Jesus. I think Jesus has a lot of good stuff to say, but, you know, the idea of him being God isn't, isn't that far-fetched. And listen, listen to what Bono says. He says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, Obviously, a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but 
But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. And so what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Yeah. What Bono is saying and, and what, what, what C.S. Lewis said before him and what Paul is saying in this letter is that Jesus either has to be the way, like he said he was, or he's, he's a madman. And he can't be anything in between. Because a good teacher, a good prophet, a good moral teacher doesn't come around and say, I'm God. F follow me and everything else is bad. That would be a bad teacher if that was untrue. But if it's true, and if Jesus was who he said he was, then he has to be supreme over all things. He can't just be a little part of our belief system. And again, yes, this can feel exclusive. This can feel like, man, that just feels like so judgmental. And again, some ways, in some ways it is exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way. But let me say this. It is also, I believe, the most inclusive uh, way of thinking and the most inclusive religious experience and, and, and religious theology that, I, that I've seen. Because essentially what it's saying is no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter your skin color, no matter your education, no matter how smart you are, how messed up you are, no matter what at all, no matter how much is in your bank account, no matter how, how much you try, we are all in the same boat and we all need a savior. And it is for everybody. That Jesus' message of, of, of forgiveness and salvation is not just for one select group of people. It's not just for the elite. It is for all people. For God so loved the world that whoever, that Jesus was, his message is so inclusive. And in some ways he's saying, I am the only way. These other ways are going to lead to destruction. But my message is for all of you. It's for everyone. We need to understand this. This needs to be deep inside of, of who we are. This is the gospel message of Jesus. And Paul is so adamant that the church holds on to this truth. Because if it, if it loses this, then it kind of loses everything. This is the core of what we believe. That Jesus is the way and he is for all people. And so Paul continues on to say in verse 6, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spirit forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. What is Paul getting at? In this part, he's continuing to address the Gnostic way of thinking. He's, he's addressing the, the Gnostics and, and saying, you know, don't get deceived by this, like, human way of thinking. Don't get deceived by these, these like, um, what, what does he say here? The, the uh, deceptive philosophy. And then he starts talking about these elemental spiritual forces, which actually is a really fascinating thing. Paul talks about these elemental spiritual forces in many of his letters. Um, and, 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 and really what he's saying is that there are other spirits. And so Paul is acknowledging that something that the Gnostics believe, yeah, that, there's truth in what you're saying, that there's these, the spiritual realm and that there's these other kind of spiritual beings that exist. But he says, Jesus is, is, is so far superior than all of them and that he is the head over all things. And so these elemental spiritual forces are much less than Jesus. And he goes back to that supremacy of Christ uh, line of thinking. But then he goes on to say this thing that I think we can just skip over pretty easily, but I think it's super significant. In verse 9, he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That the entire fullness of God lives in bodily form. And I think that phrase, bodily form, was super, super, super intentional for, for Paul to say here. What he's saying is that God himself, God who is spirit and invisible, took on flesh and came to earth. We call this incarnational theology, that the incarnation of God is Jesus, that he has a body. That he has skin and bones and muscle and hair and, and all of Jesus was a human being. And this is so significant and so important. I actually, I wish like I had a whole sermon to teach on this, but like the reason why this is important is for a number of reasons. One is it, it says that this, this life, this human existence that we have is really important. It's really important that Jesus had a job, he went to school, he, he probably got a cold. All of those things are true about Jesus. So what we experience in this life is also important. And so as Christian people, as followers of Jesus, we're not just waiting uh, until the other side of eternity. You know, we, we, we sing the songs that we're going to fly away, that, that, that God is going to take us away, and that this, this earth is bad. But let me just tell you, those thoughts are more in line with the Gnostic way of thinking. What Paul is teaching here and what Jesus believed is not that we are going to be taken away from the earth and that the, the kingdom of God is somewhere else. The teachings of Jesus is that heaven and earth need to meet and become one. That the divine, the spirit realm, and the physical realm need to be one. 
And so Jesus was the full integration of fully God, fully man, made into one. And so our jobs as Christians, are, it's not to bunker down and wait till we get taken away. Our job as Christians is to partner with the king and start inaugurating his kingdom here on earth. To start bringing peace, handfuls of heaven and bringing them here to earth. And we get to do that when we love our neighbors, when we pray for the sick, when we preach the gospel. We are ambassadors of the spiritual realm colliding with the physical realm. That, that, that is so important that we understand that. Okay, I'm going to move on. I know some of you guys want to hear more about that, and some of you guys are like, this is boring, move on. <laughs> but let's keep reading. Let's see what, what, what Paul says in verse 11. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the, bed, from the dead. So he's beginning to talk about circumcision, which is strange, right? We don't talk about circumcision a lot here in church, but Paul seems to actually talk about it a lot. Let's keep reading. He says, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Paul is still addressing the Gnostics here, but he's beginning to address the Judaizers too. Here's what he's saying. He's still addressing the Gnostics, talking about the, uh, the powers and authorities and saying that how Jesus made a spectacle of them. But he begins to, to talk to the Judaizers and address their way of thinking. Remember the Judaizers, they believed in Jesus, but they also said these things like you need to become a Jew. You need to you know, follow the customs and, and religion and, and religious ceremonies and all of those things that you need to get circumcised. And this, this act of circumcision was very, very important to the Jewish people. It was, it was a huge identity marker for them. It was a thing that set them apart from other people. And so the, the, the ritual and the act of circumcision was saying that you are separated from the rest of the world. You are set apart from the rest of the world. And you would have to do these things, these, these, these rituals and these sacrifices to, 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 to be a follower of God. And what Paul is saying here is actually really controversial and really radical. He's saying no longer do you have to do those things to, to, to uh, be set apart. The thing that sets you apart now is what Jesus did on the cross. That your identity marker is not in these rituals, not in these customs, not in circumcision. It's in what Jesus did. Jesus is now our identity. We take on his identity of what he did on the cross. We are now forgiven because of Jesus, not because of our works, not because of our obedience. 
He talks about our debt, that, that Jesus paid for our debt, and he talks about our sins, that Jesus forgave our sins. And, and because of the cross, because our debt has basically been nailed to the cross, we no longer have to follow those religious rules and customs. All we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. He alone is what saves us and puts us in right standing with God. Okay, so that's, that's the theog- theological level of what I'm talking about. Well, but what does that look like practically in our lives today? What does that look like? Well, let me give you a few examples. And let me just say, um, the examples I'm going to give you are intentionally controversial. And so let me, do I have permission to maybe step on your toes a little bit? So here's, here's the deal. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, All you need to do to be saved, all you need to do to be in a right relationship with God is accept what Jesus did on the cross and nothing else. It's Jesus plus nothing. And so how is that controversial? Well, it is not Jesus plus your political affiliation. Yeah. It's not Jesus and who you voted for. It's not Jesus and the fact that you're an American. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus your church affiliation. It's not that you belong to the right kind of church and not that other kind of church. It's not even that you belong to a church at all. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's also not Jesus plus having correct theology. It's not having the best interpretation of Scripture. Gosh, if our theology was the thing that saved us, we would be doomed. All of us, myself included. We are constantly growing in in how we see God and, and learning and how he relates to us. It's not having the best understanding and having all of our ducks in a row and, and making sure we believe all the right things that saves us. It's accepting Jesus' free gift of salvation on the cross. It's also not Jesus plus, plus having a moral life. It's not Jesus and, and doing the right things. The message isn't, hey, get your act together, stop doing that, knock that off. And then, yeah, come to church, and then, and then you're a Christian. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. It's also not Jesus plus sexual orientation. It's not Jesus and, and having, you know, the, the, the right sexual orientation or not having the wrong sexual orientation. It is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus says the way to salvation is, is through me alone. And here, I want to make it really clear what I am saying and what I am not saying. What I am not saying is that God doesn't care about good theology. What I'm not saying is God doesn't care about church. What I'm not saying is that God doesn't care about our sexual orientation or, or our morality or anything like that. What I am saying is that those things do not save you. They don't save you. What saves you is the act of Jesus dying on a cross, taking our debt, our sins, being nailed into his wrists and his feet, and paying the price that we couldn't pay. And if our salvation was based on anything that we did, you and I would be doomed. 
And Paul wants this to be super clear. This is like, this, this is like Paul's message almost in every letter he writes is, gosh, guys, this is key. We need to know it is Jesus plus nothing. When you start adding to the gospel message or subtracting from the gospel message, you're, you, you are not only just kind of tweaking it a little bit, you are preaching a false gospel. So if our gospel message is Jesus plus any of these things, then we are giving a false message of the gospel, and, and, that, and that is really bad. That is really bad. So this has to be like ingrained in who we are. And listen, some of us need to understand this for, for you know, the, what we're saying to our neighbors and stuff, but some of you guys need to hear this for yourself. Some of you guys are working so hard for God to love you and working so hard for, for God's affection and just thinking, gosh, man, I gotta, I gotta get better and, and, and I, I gotta, God is so disappointed in me. But, but God's love, his affection, his, his favor, his grace, his goodness, all of those things are free gifts that depend on what Jesus did and not what we do. Paul goes on to say, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or Sabbath day. Those were all like kind of Jewish customs. And Paul is basically saying, don't listen to the religious people. Who cares what they think? He says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, and they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. I don't know about you, and I might be wrong, but I think Paul's getting fired up here. I think Paul like, was like being really like, hey, Jesus is great. And then all of a sudden he flips the switch and he's like getting kind of, he's getting kind of like angry and he starts saying, listen, who cares about the religious people? Who cares about what they say? In fact, they're judgmental. They're puffed up. They're, they have false humility. Who cares about what they say? All that matters is what Jesus says. All that matters is what Jesus says. Paul's a little bit more brave than I am. But let me just finish with this last idea. You know, I think for most of us, we understand this principle of salvation. We understand that it's a free gift. And, and for, maybe for some of you, it felt like, oh man, this is, this is new territory. But for some of us, I feel like we grasp that. We know it's a free gift. But it's the rest of our lives that feel confusing. We think, I know how to get saved, but I don't know what to do after that. And let me put it like this. For some of us, like, if we had a neighbor come over to our house and say, hey, I want to become a Christian, uh, we, could, we could do that. We could lead them through a prayer. We could do something to say, hey, I, I know how to get you to become a Christian. But if they came back, like, a few months later and said, gosh, I am stuck I don't know what to do. I, I feel like I'm not growing. I feel like I'm still struggling with the same things. I feel like I'm still feeling the same ways. That's where we kind of punt. And we say, there's probably a good book out there for you. Or, or like, hey, you might want to talk to a pastor. Um, 
But I think there's a verse in here that we just kind of skipped over that I think is so profound and so key to living a life in Jesus. And it's verse 6. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Paul is saying, the way that you came to Jesus is the way that you live in Jesus. The way that you, that you get saved is the way that you get changed. If you want to know how to grow in your faith, if you want to know how to overcome sin, if you want to know how to, to mature in your faith and, and become more of the person that God has made you to be and become more like Jesus, it's the same way that you received Jesus. And how did we receive Jesus? By grace. It was a gift. It was, it was, it was a transformational act where Jesus did the work for us. And the way that we grow in our faith, the way that we're transformed is by Jesus doing the work for us. So, so what, what, what I'm saying is that you don't have to try and work really hard to become a, a better Christian or to overcome sin. The way that we, we, we grow is by saying, gosh, God, I have this thing, this, this issue in my life that, that, that I, I don't know how to deal with. Can, can you deal with it? Or, or, or God, I, I just feel like I have this anger and this unforgiveness towards this person, and I don't want to live in that anymore. Can you, can you, can you help me with that? And He transforms us. He changes us from the inside out. Listen, this is so profound, and this is rocking me currently in my life right now. This is something that I feel like I've grown up hearing and kind of always known, but it is totally transforming me right now. And I have found that this happens all my life. That you continue to grow in your understanding of this. Currently, one of the things that I've just realized is that I've always known that God always loves me. Like that's been like something that's been ingrained in me since I was a little boy. Um, and so I'll say, God, I know that you love me when I mess up and I'm sinful but you love me more when I'm not. Or God, I know that you love me when I, you know, decide I don't want to share my faith with that person, but you love me more when I do. Or God, I know that you love me if I say, hey, I don't want to go to a small group and I just want to stay home and binge watch Netflix, but you love me more when I do. And let me tell you guys something, that is, is, is a pharisaical, Judaizer way of thinking. It is. God doesn't love us more when we do the good things. He loves you so much. So let me just say it like this. When you wake up in the morning, how do you feel God's posture is towards you? When you just blew it for the hundredth time, is, is God looking at you with adoration and just wanting to meet with you? Or is he like... Golly, again? Because let me tell you, he's not looking at you that way. He is so, he wants to meet with you. He is for you. There's nothing that you can do to, to lose his love, and there's nothing that you can do to earn his love. You got it. You got it. And so for some of us today, maybe, maybe God is inviting you into that for the first time. 
Maybe you're here and, and you are someone who's never given their life to Jesus and never started that walk with Jesus. And, and God is saying, I'm inviting you into that today. Maybe for some of us, we feel stuck. You relate to, to what I was saying, where you have this kind of slightly faulty way of thinking where it's like, gosh, I feel like I needed to earn God's love. And, and, and God is saying, no, you don't. And he's saying, just, just know that you got it. And you just feel stuck. You, you feel like you can't grow. And, and God is saying, let me transform you. Let me transform you. Maybe, maybe for some of you, you're like the super Christian. Like you, uh, you somehow volunteer 10 weeks out of a four-week period and you're like leading eight small groups and you're doing all these things. And God is saying, do you know that those things don't earn my love? Those things don't earn my love. I'm not saying that you shouldn't volunteer or do anything like that. I'm good. Uh, but I'm saying those things aren't what get you in right standing with God. What gets you in right standing with God is what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus loves you very, very much. More than you'll ever know. So, so why, why don't we stand?